0: Well, I will not take any length of time. If you have seen the movie Black Hawk Down, then you will know a little bit about the background of our speaker tonight. But let me just say this, as he will tell you, I'm sure, whatever details he wishes to share about himself or that series of events. Just as meeting Alan West and spending hours with Alan West this last week was not a disappointment, uh, neither was this. Uh, After spending the evening with Jeff and the time that he has been with us today, I can tell you this, this man loves Jesus, and he loves the United States of America. Please give a warm welcome to our stage, Major Jeff Struker. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to thank um, Pastor Blair for graciously inviting me to be in his home last night. And I just want to tell you, I am so proud of this church and what you stand for. Because I get a chance to speak to churches um, around the country, especially around patriotic days like Memorial Day or Veterans Day. But of course, this weekend, we celebrate our independence. It's not just a birthday for America. This is a celebration of freedom. And I can just tell you, honestly, sometimes it feels like I go to churches and meet Christians that don't really appreciate their freedom. But Fairview is different. Amen. I, I think I run into Christians who have this very cheap value that they assign to freedom. And it concerns me. And I I love to be around believers who understand the extremely high cost paid for our freedom. So what I want to do for just a few moments is just talk to you about freedom, specifically about the freedom that was purchased for you by two brave men. And then at the end, I just want to lay a challenge before you. Um, But it's interesting that you would choose to sing the song, God Bless America. Because I, I knew the song, I'd heard the song growing up, but it never held the significance for me that it, that I first, my first real significance with this song was on an airfield in, in the Republic of Panama the night that the U.S. started the invasion. A handful of us showed up there early. And we gathered around in a hangar the night that the invasion was going to begin. And without any real accompaniment, without anybody directing us, a handful of America's toughest and meanest men on the planet sang to perfection that song and meant every word of it. In fact, that song has become kind of an unofficial anthem that's sung right before warriors from the special operations community, all branches of the military, step off of an airplane, they leave a helicopter, they launch from a boat or from a vehicle and go do bad things to bad people. And it's because they love America. So I'm going to tell you how I ended up in the United States military, in the special operations community, and really what I want to tell you about is the moment that Jesus set me free from my greatest fear. I joined the Army while I was 18 and still in high school, and I really did this on a whim nobody was pressuring me into the military. I didn't come from a military family. And so while I was still 18 and in high school, I just showed up in a recruiter's office and I asked uh, army recruiter, what do you consider to be the toughest job in the army? And this recruiter didn't hesitate when he talked to me about the army's airborne Rangers. Now I didn't know what I was asking for. So when I said, what's the toughest job in the army, he basically started to tell me about a group that I would never heard of before. And he described for me who Rangers were. He talked to me about what they did in the military, but this guy was really honest with me. In fact, I learned later, I was the first person that he put in the army. And he said, Jeff, before you go any further, I want you to go home and watch this documentary. Because I'm convinced you don't know what you're asking for. And I wouldn't be able to sleep with myself if you didn't know what you were getting into. So you go home and watch this 2020 expose on the Army's Ranger Course. And I took this documentary home, and I watched it, and I saw some of the greatest warriors in America from all branches of the military. They come to Fort Benning, Georgia, and they attempt ranger school. And when I say attempt ranger school, some of the toughest, smartest, um, most competent men in America will not make it through the first week, let alone finish the course months later. And man, I was hooked. I took this documentary back and I handed it to the recruiter the next day and I said, sign me up because I want to become an airborne ranger. And he said, well, if you really want to do this, we're going to send you to Fort Benning, Georgia. We're going to train you to be an infantryman. We're going to send you through the Army's airborne school and then what happens next is you volunteer and after that it is totally out of our hands. You volunteer to serve in the United States Army's 75th Ranger Regiment. Now, this is a special operations unit. It's actually located all over the United States, but it's headquartered at Fort Benning, Georgia. And they will put you through this rigorous test. And if you can make it, then you'll have a chance to serve in this elite special operations unit. So I showed up when I was still 18. And I spent the next 10 years consecutively In that, excuse me, in that unit, I showed up as a private. I left there 10 years later as a sergeant first class. And I had the privilege of working with the greatest warriors this country's ever seen. I really am the man that's standing before you today because of the guys that I served with and what they poured into my life. And I got up every morning and just thought, I don't want to let those guys down. I want to be like them one day. So, I just got up every morning and gave it my all because I didn't want to let my buddies down. When I joined the Army and when I was asking for the toughest assignment in the Army, I had a hidden agenda. And I never told anybody about this until years later. I was convinced if my recruiter found out about this, that he wouldn't let me in the Army at all. And I was afraid that if my buddies found out about this, they'd think that I was crazy. But I really joined the Ranger Regiment because I wanted to go to war. And I wanted to be shot at. Yeah, I'll let that sink in for a second. Now let me describe why. When I was a kid, I didn't grow up in a church home. And my family didn't go to church. And there was nobody to talk to me about faith or about Jesus. So I grew up with this absolutely terrifying fear of death. And I mean, this goes back as far as I can remember. I woke up in the middle of the night and I was totally aware that one of these days I'm going to die, but I have no idea what comes next. And nobody in my family could answer some burning questions. So this went on for years. I would wake my family up in the middle of the night and I would ask them the same questions over and over again. I want you to listen to their answers, their abominable answers to this question. I'd ask them, where do you go after you die? And they said, well, Jeff, you go to heaven. And when I said, what's heaven like? They said, You float around on a cloud and you play a harp. Wait, it gets worse. It gets much worse. Because when I asked them, well, who gets to go to heaven? They said, everybody does, Jeff. And that didn't settle this fear that I experienced, this paralyzing fear that I experienced for many years growing up. And then at 13 years old, I moved into an apartment complex And my next door neighbors Right across the hall from me Were a young married couple They they actually were not much older than me And they didn't have children They were newly married And they decided to treat me like a little brother They always wanted to hang out Always wanted to do stuff with me I got to know them for a couple of months And then at about two or three months Into living in this apartment complex One day they knocked on my door And they said, Jeff, can we talk to you for a second? And they were acting really weird. And uh, they said, can we come in and can we sit down and can we have a conversation with you? Because there's something really important we need to talk to you about. And my next door neighbors, for the first time in my life, described for me who Jesus was. I know it now as they were explaining the gospel to me. But they, they told me about sin. And they made it really clear, Jeff, you are a sinner. No one is righteous, no not one, and the wages of sin is death. You deserve to die, we deserve to die because of our sin. But they said, Jeff, you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin because it's already been paid for you by Jesus Christ. And then they made two statements for me, and I remember these statements clearly. They said, if you will surrender your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will change your life right now he will give you what john 10, 10 describes as the abundant life the full life but not only will he change your life right here right now and give you abundant life he will also give you eternal life and you don't have to wonder you don't have to worry about what happens to you after you die and this couple was so scared. They were stumbling all over themselves. They were, they were really nervous. They, at that point, they just simply left it there and said, hey, we got to go. We're out of here. I'm convinced they had never shared their faith with anybody before in their life. Now, please hear me, Christian, because it sank in. And that night when I was laying down in bed, every word that they said made perfect sense to me. And I crawled up out of my bed and I knelt down and I don't even remember what I prayed, but it was basically like, Jesus, I want what they just said. I don't want to live with this fear anymore. And that night, God radically changed me. So much so that the next day when I got home from school, when I got off the bus, instead of going to my apartment, I went across the hall and knocked on their door and said, I did what you guys said last night and something is different inside of me. And that's the night that God really dealt with that fear of dying. I never really struggled with it after that. So can call me crazy if you want, but when I join the army, I want to go to war. I want to get shot at because I want to know, am I really over this fear of dying? I want to know, Have I really settled what I believe about eternity? So I'm a sergeant in the Army's Ranger Regiment. It's December of 1989, and I get notified that we're about to invade the Republic of Panama. We're going to put hundreds of aircraft in the skies on December 20th, the night of the invasion, and we really believe that some of those aircraft might get shot down. So we decide it's time for a search and rescue force to go down there early, go down there in secrecy, and be there when the invasion begins. If an aircraft gets shot down, we'll put the search and rescue force in and, ga- and grab the pilots. So I arrive in Panama about 24 hours before the invasion begins. And on the moment that the invasion is starting, we're singing the last words of God Bless America, getting on helicopters, and I'm flying all over the country to go kill the Panamanian Defense Forces, the Panamanian Army, but our job was really to go capture the country's leader, Manuel Noriega. Now, we wiped out the army pretty easily, pretty quickly. Honestly, many of those guys just gave themselves up. But the country's leader, Noriega, he started to run from us. And we started to chase him all over the country. For us, it was the hunt for Elvis. He pops up over here, and we go after him. He shows up over there, and we're after him. And after about two weeks, we've got Noriega. We send him back to the United States. You know that he stands trial, and he ends up in a Miami prison. Now, I'm in a firefight or two in the invasion of Panama. I was in a helicopter that had to make an emergency landing for, because of gunfire. But I was never in a circumstance where I thought, this is it. Tonight's the night. I'm going to die. So I stayed in the Army. I stuck around. There's still more about the military that I wanted to do. But more importantly, the real reason for joining in the first place, I don't think I ever got there in Panama. I did, however, realize that life is short because some of my buddies who were 19 or 20 years old died during that invasion. And I also realized, and you all know this in this room, you know it well, God didn't promise any of us tomorrow. So if you're dragging your feet, if you're hanging on and waiting to do some things that you know you're supposed to do, that God is prompting you to do and you're just waiting till tomorrow well you don't have that promise and I don't have that promise and I'm saying that because I had been dragging my feet about proposing to my high school sweetheart and as soon as I got back from Panama I decided I am not going to let somebody else marry that girl I'm going to go buy a ring and I'm going to propose and Dawn and I set a date to get married about a year later now a year later Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm are going on, and I'm in Fort Benning, Georgia. She's back in our hometown. We have made all of the arrangements. We're just a few weeks away from the wedding day, and I convinced my commander to let me make a phone call. Now I'm in a special operations unit, which means everything that we do is very secret. And on this phone call, it's a it's an unsecure phone line. I make a phone call to my fiance just a few weeks away from the wedding day. And I say, Dawn, I can't tell you where I'm going. I'm not authorized to tell you when I'm leaving. And I don't know when I'm going to get back. But I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be in the country on our wedding day. (laughs) Yeah, come on, ladies. She's put a lot of time. I didn't do anything. She put a lot of time and effort into this wedding And after a long pause on the phone, my wife, who is probably the most patriotic woman in America, said, Jeff, if you're going off to war again, you need to fly home, and we need to get married right away. I said, yes, ma'am, and I got on a plane. My boss allowed me to go home. I landed at about noon, and that afternoon, we were walking down the aisle of our family church, getting married, got back on that plane, and eventually headed my way over to Kuwait. Now, I got shot at in Kuwait, too, but it was nothing like Mogadishu, Somalia. By this point, I'm 24 years old, I'm a squad leader, and I've got 10 men that I'm responsible for. And let me just tell you why Task Force Ranger goes to Somalia. Because in the, middle of the 19, in the middle of 1992, there is a drought which causes a famine. And in Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Eritrea, but especially in Somalia, there are hundreds of thousands of people dead from starvation. And because this is a good country, the United States decides we're going to try to help. The United Nations shows up. And honestly, the United Nations doesn't do a whole lot well, but sometimes they can hand out food to people that are starving. And so maybe you remember the Marines landing on the beaches in December of 1992, opening up supply lines and handing out beans and rice to people that are going to die tomorrow if they don't get something to eat today. And the United States stayed there. We started to send more forces there. And the whole mission that sent the U.S. military there in 1992 was to just help people that are starving to death. Well, the country didn't have a military. There was no real police force. And the capital city, Mogadishu, was run by seven warlords. They're like gang leaders in our country. And these warlords used drugs and guns to control the population. Most of those warlords didn't mind the United States being there. But one of those warlords decided to start to use food as well as drugs and guns. And this guy by the name of Muhammad Farah Aidid and his Habergetter clan started to target United Nations workers. He started to attack U.S. supply convoys in the spring and the summer of 1993. And in June of 93, he ambushed and murdered 24 Pakistani United Nations workers. Listen to how evil men can become. His goal was to take the food away from his own people and force them to fight for for him or starve them to death. And in the summer of 93, when Idid and his clan ambushed and murdered these United Nations workers, the UN Security Council met together. And they made a resolution that basically said, uh, somebody needs to do something about Idid. And the rest of the world didn't have the will to do it or the courage to do it. So the United States said, we'll take care of it. And they, they assembled Task Force Ranger. Now, I'm describing this because if you watch the beginning of the movie Black Hawk Down, it gives a couple of minutes of description of what's going on. But Task Force Ranger did not go to Somalia to hand out food. That's not what we do for a living. We went to Somalia to kill or to capture Mohamed Farah Idid and a couple of the high-ranking guys from his clan. We did a number of missions over there. But on the seventh and final mission, this thing turns into the firefight that becomes known as Black Hawk Down. Now, on this day, Sunday afternoon, October 3rd, 1993, we got notified that two really high-ranking leaders from Idid's clan are meeting in the same building at the same time. Now, we've been there for about three months trying to catch Idid and a couple more guys. And at this point, we're getting a lot of pressure from the Clinton administration to wrap this thing up and to get out of there because people are starting to call Somalia another Vietnam. We knew that this was a really, really bad scenario because this is the center of town controlled by Idid. It's actually the home base for his forces it's broad daylight and special operators almost never do missions during the daytime. We do business at night. Um, we actually live by vampires before the sun comes up, we scurry back and try to get out of the way before the sun comes up. And this is a mission that if you go in, you're going in by yourself and there's nobody there to bail you out. And our big boss, the commanding general, major general William Garrison decided to launch a mission to go get these guys. So special operators loaded on Little Bird helicopters and flew in and assaulted the target building, just like you see in the movie Black Hawk Down. Rangers flew in on Blackhawks, these are guys from my unit, and they slid down the ropes and they provided a security force around the target building, put four positions of Rangers at the four corners of the target building. Their job was to keep all of the bad guys out of the building until those special operators were done inside. And while all of that is going on, I led a long column of Humvees, about 10 or 12 Humvees, through the city streets, and we parked about a half a block away from the target building. We got there about the moment that the helicopters were pulling off. Our job was to wait until the special operators get done inside that building. The first and most important thing, we're going to grab the bad guys and put them on the Humvees. Everybody else who went in by helicopter will go to the Humvees, we will load everybody up, and we're going to try to get out of there in less than 30 minutes because we knew if this goes longer than 30 minutes, it's going to go south really fast. And when I got to the Target building that day, as soon as I arrived there, my boss was already calling me on the radio saying, Jeff, we've got a seriously wounded ranger, and I need you to get up here, get your vehicles up here, and drive him back to our surgeon and get him immediate medical attention. We don't know exactly what happened, but Todd Blackburn, one of the new rangers to my unit, When he was leaving the helicopter and sliding down the rope, Blackburn missed the rope, and he fell about 70 feet. And I went up there to get him. He had a couple of medics trying to keep him alive, and I placed him on a cargo Humvee. It's like a pickup truck with no protection around him. And I split my men in half and put half of my squad on a vehicle in front of him. And the rest of my men on a vehicle behind them. And what we're gonna do is provide some guns and some protection to get them back to our surgeon. We were getting shot at as soon as I arrived at the target building, but I've been shot at before, and I know what this feels like. And the bullets were far enough over my head that I really wasn't that worried about gunfire, I was more concerned about roadside bombs. So I had a guy who was driving my Humvee and I told him to drive really slowly at like 10 or 15 miles an hour and I want you to avoid as many potholes as possible because it's in the potholes that the Somalis had been placing roadside bombs. And So we drove down the alleyway right next to the Target building and then I made a turn onto a major road and when I say major road, it is smaller than this room right here. And when I turn that corner... It was like the entire city just erupted with gunfire on these three Humvees. Now, the movie Black Hawk Down doesn't even come close to demonstrating what happened on those vehicles. We started to get hit from rooftops and alleyways. Guys were just lobbing hand grenades at us. We're driving 10 or 15 miles an hour down the road, 10 feet away from us. There's rocket-propelled grenades going both directions. We're getting hit from windows and doorways, from every imaginable direction. The Somalis didn't care if they died, if they sent their women to die, literally if they sent their children to die. So we're getting hit from every direction by everybody in the city. And I got a guy on a Browning 50 caliber machine gun who's holding the trigger down and spraying bullets all over the place because we're getting hit from everywhere. And he really wasn't being very effective that way. So I told him to take his machine gun, face to the left side of the Humvee, and pick up the bad guys on the left side of the Humvee. There was also another guy with a machine gun sitting right behind me. He is to this day the greatest machine gunner I've ever seen in my life. His name is Sergeant Dominic Pilla. And I told Pilla to take his machine gun and face the right side of the Humvee and pick up all of the enemy fighters to the right. I'm going to take care of all the bad guys in front of us. Another guy sitting in the back seat will take care of all of the bad guys behind us. And right now, these three vehicles are just trying to make it back to the base alive. We're just fighting to keep each other alive right now. And down the road on the right side, waiting for us, hiding, is a Somali gunman. And when he sees Dominic Pilla, Pilla sees him at the same moment. And these two guys shoot and kill each other at the exact same instant. Pella's killed instantly. And he falls over into the lap of Specialist Tim Moynihan. And Moynihan begins to lose control and to panic. In fact, he's screaming my name. Sergeant Strucker, Pella's been hit. He's been killed. And when I looked over my shoulder, it was like the whole back of that Humvee just got painted red with his blood. And guys, I started to panic. And then I started to think about myself and what it took to lead... And I started to realize, Jeff, you got to get yourself under control right now. If you're going to be able to get your men under control, they need to see that you have got it under control. So very calmly, I told Tim Moynihan, take your weapon, face the right side of the Humvee, pick up Dominic Pillow's sector of fire, and fight for your life, or we're not going to make it back to the base. Now, when we finally got back there, I won't even tell you about what it took for us to get back there. But when I got back there, my vehicles are shot to pieces. And this now is the first guy from our task force that has been killed in action. There's been other guys wounded at this point, but he's the first guy killed. And I leaned over the hood of my Humvee and I started thinking, God, I can't believe that I survived. I can't believe that anybody just made it out of that crazy firefight alive. And about that moment, my platoon leader walked up to me. And he said, Jeff, a second Black Hawk helicopter just got shot down. And I didn't even know the first one went down because I was fighting for my life. He said, We've already put the search and rescue force in at the first crash Black Hawk. And we don't have anybody else who can go back out there. So, Jeff, I need you to get your men back on your Humvees. I need you to drive back out there. And I need you to see if anyone is alive where Mike Durant's helicopter crashed. One of the special operators who overheard that conversation, he came up to me just like you see in the movie Black Hawk Down right after that conversation. And he said, hey, Sergeant, if you're really going to go out into those city streets... Don't leave your men in the back of that Humvee sitting in all of that blood. He said, that will mess them up for the rest of their life. You should probably go clean this Humvee up. So I took the tough job as a leader. I sent all the rest of my men, go get some more fuel, go get some more ammunition. And I pulled this one Humvee off to the side. And with no running water, just buckets and bare hands, I started to clean the back of this Humvee up. And now I want you to hear how much of a difference faith in Jesus Christ makes when you're in over your head. Because I'm at the back of that Humvee, and there is no question that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, but I am scared to death, and I have no shame in admitting this is the most terrifying moment of my life. There isn't even a close second. And I'm thinking to myself, God, this is going to be my blood tonight. God, I've already lost one of my men. And if I drive back out there, every one of us are going to get killed tonight. This is a suicide mission. And I also started to think, you know, Dawn and I, we had been married for about three years at this point. We've been trying to have a baby the whole time. And I got a letter in the mail, first week in Somalia, saying that she was pregnant with our first child. And I was thinking, I'm never going to see my wife again. And my child will never even know who their father is. let me tell you about airborne rangers you see these guys swear their lives to one another literally almost every day they do it in what's called the ranger creed and they pledge themselves to one another in the ranger creed almost every day and one of the things that the ranger creed says is i will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy And I'm at the back of that Humvee and I start to think, I've got a decision to make. If I go back out into the city streets, there is no question I'm going to die. And if I don't go back out into the city streets, it is a 100% certainty that Mike Durant and his crew are going to die. And I started to realize I don't have a choice. This is what the army, this is what America is asking of me and I don't have a choice. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. But I don't have a choice. And then I just simply started to pray. And I don't want you to think like I started negotiating with God. Because it wasn't one of those prayers. It was a, God, I'm in big trouble. And I need help. Prayer. <coughs> and whatever you got to do next, I'm placing it in your hands. And then Christian, would you listen to me for just a second? Because he, he told, I, I learned this. When I first started following Jesus at 13, but it really hit home in Mogadishu, Somalia, I learned there's really only one of two ways this thing is going to go down. Maybe God chooses to spare my life. Maybe I'm able to go home to our wife and the baby that's on the way. But maybe he doesn't. There's no guarantees here. And if he doesn't allow me to survive this battle... Before my body hits the ground, I know exactly where my soul is going to go. Now look up here for just a second. Because I started to rationalize it this way. Either you go home to your family in Georgia. Or Jeff, you're going to go home to your father in heaven. One of those two is going to happen tonight. And no matter what happens next, I can't lose. In fact, if you really believe what the apostle Paul said to live is Christ and to die is what is gain. Then I'm better off dying in Mogadishu than going back home to Fort Benning, Georgia. And from that moment on, it was like a switch was flipped inside of me. Like from that instant on all night long, I'm 100% certain I am going to die and I have no fear whatsoever about it. I spent all night long till nine o'clock the next morning on the battlefield, going in and out of those city streets, totally convinced that I was going to die and no fear whatsoever. In fact, when people ask me, how did that happen? I'm like, I don't know. I can't even put it into words. All I can describe it for you as is the peace that passes all understanding. Because I'm on that battlefield and I'm certain that I'm going to die and I don't care anymore. Because I'm ready to go home and be with my daddy in heaven. And at that moment, I started to just simply say, you know, all that this world has to offer, it's really not that great. What's waiting for me in the future, that's what's worth living for, not what's here for me today. So I spend all night long until 9 o'clock the next morning on the battlefield. And I would still be a crusty old sergeant in the Army's Ranger Regiment today if it wasn't for the next morning. You see, I believe that God made me to be a warrior, that he wanted me to kick in doors. He wanted me to kill the enemies of our country and to preserve our freedom. And I felt no problems doing that and being a believer at the same time. But the next day, my buddies started coming up to me. And they started asking me some questions. They said, Jeff, I watched you last night on the battlefield, and you were different than everybody else out there. Jeff, I was listening to your voice over the radio, and when everybody else was totally terrified, you were completely calm. How is that even possible? And then they started to say stuff like, uh, Jeff, you have something that I don't have, and I want it. I want to know what do you have because ranger training didn't do this for you, Jeff. I went through the same training you did and I didn't have what you had last night. So what do you got? They started asking me questions like, Jeff, where do I go? If tonight is the night that I die on a helicopter or a Humvee, Jeff, what happened to my buddy who just got killed last night? Did you, did you hear what I just said? They started asking me the exact same questions that I was asking my family at seven years old. And I looked my buddies in the eyes and not one or two of them, but many of them lined up waiting to talk to me and started talking to them about Jesus Christ. In fact, I can tell you, I can take you to the exact spot on this airfield in Mogadishu, Somalia, where God made it totally clear to me. I didn't want this, didn't ask for this, but he made it abundantly clear. Jeff, I want you to do something different. Than just sling lead with America's enemies. I want you to reach America's warriors. At their soul. And I want you to make a difference for eternity. Which set me on a path to become an army chaplain. I spent the last 10 years in the army. Get this. With the very same rangers that I served with in Somalia. I went to Afghanistan 9 times. And Iraq 5 times during those last 10 years. And I looked some of the greatest warriors in the world in the eyes and said, I know what you're going through because I've been there too. And I can tell you personally the difference that it makes when Jesus Christ is the center of your world. And more than a couple of them found faith in Jesus Christ and boldly confronted the enemies of our country. You see, I think I'm here tonight to just tell you the The promise that Jesus makes for us in John chapter 8. John, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but there's a group of religious leaders around in John chapter 8. And Jesus says this If you will obey my commandments, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And those religious leaders were confused. They said, wait a second, Jesus, we're children of Abraham. How can you say, John chapter 3, verse 33, how can you say that we can be set free? We're free men. Basically, they're saying, we live in the United States of America, the freest country that's ever existed in human history. Nothing else has even come close. Why would you tell us that we need to become free? And Jesus says, that's an easy one. You see, anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, and the word slave means you can't pray hard enough, you can't work hard enough, you can't be a good enough person that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that's not how it works with God, Jesus says, the son knows the father, and because the Son comes from the Father, the Son knows the Father, when the Son sets you free, listen to these words, Christian, you will be free indeed. Free from death, free from the grave, free from sin. Paul says, Death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? It's been defeated on Easter Sunday morning by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't have to fear death, you got nothing else to worry about. So please hear me, Christian. If you're wrestling with fears and you're struggling with the future, I want you to know that the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand also holds you. He says no one and nothing can snatch you out of it. And if he holds you in the palm of, his, palm of his hand, you got nothing to worry about. When you sit in the doctor's office and you wait for those test results, you got nothing to worry about when you start crunching the numbers and you start to wonder, are we going to be able to make payroll next month or are we going to have to close the business and go bankrupt? you got nothing to worry about. When a teenage son is going buck wild and you can't do anything to stop it, you got nothing to worry about when a wife or a husband of 30 years sits down and says, There's somebody else and I'm out of here. You don't have to worry about it because you've got a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, and he will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He's not promising you that you don't go through the valley. But he is promising. I'll be right there with you. Every step of the way. And I need you to know, Christian, that when you have that kind of a relationship with the king of the universe, you got nothing to worry about. And my challenge to you is when you leave here tonight, you live in such a way that your neighbor's your coworkers say, man, you got something that I don't have. And I want what you have because I'm watching the way that you suffer. Listen to me. I'm watching how you suffer and I can't do what you're doing. So what do you have? Cause it must be real, but I'm also here to challenge somebody. Maybe you came tonight and you don't have real freedom because you're still a slave to sin. Oh, you've heard about Jesus. But to you, he's no different than George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Just a guy in a book that you read about a long time ago. And what you need is to be set free from the shackles of sin. So if you don't mind, Pastor, I'm just going to pray for this church. I'm going to pray that maybe somebody tonight would be set free for the first time in your life. But I'm praying for Christians who have been set free. That you would be set free all over again. From the Lord Jesus Christ. I call him King Jesus. And when King Jesus sets you free, you really, really are free indeed. So let me pray for you. God in heaven, you know these people. I don't. And Father, you and you alone know what they're going through right now. Maybe some people in this room are really going through some rough stuff. Maybe they're really struggling right now. God, you know something that nobody in this room knows. You know what's waiting for us around the corner. And Father, I'm first praying for my brothers and sisters, the saints of God in this room, that you would give them a holy boldness. You would give them a confidence, a strength in their faith to say, I don't care what tomorrow throws at me because I know the one who holds my future also has me in the palm of his hand. And so tomorrow I'm going to give a get up and I'm going to make the conscious decision to live without fear. Father, would you make them so bold, so courageous in the way that they live, that their friends, their coworkers, the people they go to school with or their neighbors would say, man, I want what you got. And you would use this church to turn Oklahoma and the nation around and cause people to return to you and to the Lord Jesus Christ. But God, I I would hate that somebody came here tonight not knowing what it means to truly be set free if I didn't offer them a chance to be what Jesus describes as born again. So, if there's somebody here tonight, God, and you know who they are, and they have never really stepped across the line of faith, they've heard, they have understood who Jesus is, but they've never really cast it all on Him and said, I'm banking on Him and only on Him. If He's not real and if He doesn't change me, I have no hope for the future. God, maybe somebody silently in their own heart would just cry out a prayer of faith right now and simply say, Forgive me, Father, because I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve heaven. But I believe that you love me. I believe that you love me so much that you wouldn't leave me in my sin. That you sent your son Jesus on a suicide rescue mission to go snatch me out of my sin. And clean me up. And make me acceptable in your sight. And right here, right now God. You know me. So you know this is real. I'm turning from my sins. And I am trusting Jesus for the first time and I'm asking that you would meet me that you would change me that you'd make me into a new man you would turn me into a new woman you would do something for me that I can't do for myself and God I'm just praying right now that you would do something in such a way that only you can get the credit for it father thank you for this church, thank you for the pastors that, that shepherd this congregation to love Jesus and love this country and want to bless you because you have blessed us to, with the privilege of living in this free nation. So, God, would you be, be with these people right now? Holy Spirit, would you bless them and move in their midst right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much for the chance to be with you tonight. God bless <laughs>